Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Philippians and chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to the saint, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops or the overseers, that is the elders, and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offence to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Once again, our God and our Father, we thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures, given to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Come by your Holy Spirit and open up the word to us in order that we might increase in faith, in love, in hope, in zeal, in joy. We may be sincere and blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. Help us and bless us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How certain are you of reaching heaven? Are you persuaded there is such a place as heaven, that it is real? You persuaded, as John Bunyan was in his famous Pilgrim's Progress, that you make that pilgrimage, you will cross the river and enter into what he called the Celestial City. I ask that question because I've been asked over again and again as a pastor to this congregation in years gone by. I've been asked, when I've visited people I've said what is your greatest fear and often the answer has been that I may not attain to heaven I may not make it I may fall away and sin and turn away from Christ the reason for that is not certain maybe that that particular person doesn't understand the scriptures hasn't taken to heart the promises of God 
or simply their faith is still weak, they're uninstructed and need further teaching from the word of God. Others that I've spoken to, and you've probably spoken to, say, you ask a question like that, no one can know the answer. And there may be people who say, well, I don't even believe in heaven. It's possible someone here this morning may be precisely in that position. They say, I don't believe there is such a place as heaven. And if, you, if there is, other people say, well, you can never be sure. That's presumption, to think that you will attain to heaven. You do your best. You hope that God will accept you. That's the best you can really do. It's almost certain that such a person will never reach heaven because they're building on the wrong foundations. Here in Philippians and chapter 1 and verse 6, you have a man who is certain about his future. He is certain about heaven. And he's certain about heaven for himself and for the church in Philippi. And indeed for every Christian. Firstly, Note with me in verse 6, the confidence of the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you, all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. Paul is giving reasons here why his soul abounds in thanksgiving to God for the church in Philippi. He thinks of them in terms of the joyful remembrance he has of them. He was the one who went to Philippi. He is the one who preached the gospel. He was the one who founded the church in Philippi with Barnabas. Sorry, with Silas. But then he's also thankful to God for their partnership in the gospel. He mentions that in verse 7. Inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. They stood shoulder to shoulder with the apostle. They excelled in giving and receiving. They sent once and again to meet his necessities. But ultimately, he is thankful and he is confident in his thankfulness and joyful in his thankfulness. Because of God's work in them. I am confident, being confident this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. His mood is one of supreme confidence, positive expectation. Would the Philippians run the race? Would they cross the finishing line? Would they attain heaven? Would they see Paul? Would he see them? Absolutely. He has no doubt in his own mind and heart. That is despite all the pressures and all the troubles that they are facing. Where is Paul when he writes this letter? He's in prison. And he doesn't know if he will live. He may be put to death. The Philippians are facing difficulties and troubles. You find that at the end in verse of chapter 1 in verse 28. He says, I don't want you in any way to be terrified by your adversaries. There are those who are against them. Will they 
rise above these difficulties and troubles. The Apostle Paul does not hesitate, being confident of this thing, this one thing. And the emphasis is on this one thing. Nothing else matters at this point. Here is a gospel-based optimism and expectation and confidence. A God-shaped certainty. A God-shaped conviction that is determined by God's action. It's not a confidence in himself and his own guts and courage and ability. It's not a confidence that the Philippians are more uh, earnest and more faithful than perhaps some of the other churches that he's involved with. No, it is a confidence that is founded upon God. In God. God the Father in particular. But because it is God the Father, therefore it is also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is confidence then in something that the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is doing. It's much something and somebody much bigger than him and much bigger than the Philippians. And it's a confidence that ought to characterize every single true Christian. This is not something for someone who's someone special. This is not something which is just for an apostle. This is something for all the saints, all the ones who have been set apart by God through Jesus Christ. It is a confidence that ought therefore to characterize every single saint, every single believer. That is why I asked at the very outset, how certain are you of attaining heaven? Because if you profess to be a Christian, then you ought to be certain about the future and about heaven and about God's work in you so having set out the confidence briefly of the apostle Paul I want secondly to consider the firm grounds of his confidence what basis he's not just flying a kite in a hopeful kind of way this is something which is far more certain God will ensure that he and the Philippians will reach heaven. Look carefully at what it says in verse 7. Take it all in. I am confident of this very work, sorry, this very thing, that he, that is God, the triune God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ he's saying God has begun a good work in you God has begun that work and God will bring that work to completion it's a work in progress God is active God is energetic God is the kind of God who is always working he's always involved and Paul's confidence is grounded in this triune God, who he is, and what he does, and what he is capable of doing. It's an ongoing work. This is the ground, then, of his confidence. And what God is doing is described as a good work. 
You remember back in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, a book of Genesis, when God had finished the work of creation on the sixth day, what did he say about the work which he had done? It was not only good, it was very good, exceedingly good. He was pleased, he was delighted with what he had done. There was a goodness about it. The Psalms abound in references to God's good works. He is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The memory of God's great goodness causes the psalmist to bubble forth in praise and thanksgiving. Perhaps we could say that the goodness of God is the sum total of all that he is. It displays his disposition. It displays his character. It's his attributes. He is awesome in all his works. But you can put this title over them all. Good. And here is a specific good work of God. It's not just a general kind of benevolence to all his creatures. It is far more specific. Notice where this good work takes place. Verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and with the deacons. He's writing to the church of Jesus Christ there and he's saying God has begun a good work in you and he will bring it to completion it's a work in you in your experience in your hearts in your minds in your lives it's your whole person the goodness of God he says is being displayed to you as saints the source then is God this good work it's done in love It's in their hearts. But what is this good work then specifically? Well, it has a beginning. He says he has begun a good work in you. The implication is, of course, it's not yet finished. But he's begun. And he says it will continue as he writes, as they hear the letter that he writes to them. It's like a seed that has been sown. It will bear fruit. Because it's a work of God, a good work of God. And I would suggest to you that it was this beginning of this good work in them was the day they came to repent of their sin and to put their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ for salvation. The day they received Christ and they received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. The day that they were set apart as saints to God. Some of you will remember well how the gospel first came to Philippi through the ministry of Paul and Silas. Paul had had a vision. They'd been prevented from going to various places in that part of the world. And Paul had a vision. A man of Macedonia in this vision saying, come over and help us. Now Philippi was in the Roman part of 
uh, of, of Macedonia because Rome, uh, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. And Paul had this vision. And the first significant meeting that Paul and the party who were with him had in Philippi was with a lady called Lydia. There was a group of women meeting on the Sabbath day by the riverside to pray. And Paul began to speak to them the gospel. And among them was Lydia and some of her household among these other women. And it's very significant in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14 you have this statement. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to heed the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. The Lord opened her heart. In other words, the Lord began to do a good work in Lydia. She heard the gospel. She believed the gospel. She turned to Jesus Christ. She was a worshipper of God in, in the broad sense. She was a proselyte, a Jewish proselyte. But now she embraced Christ as he was presented to her by the Apostle Paul. And then you remember the second convert. It was Lydia and her household, but there were more than just Lydia. But then you reckon the second group. Everybody here perhaps knows the story of the Philippian jailer. It's a dramatic story. Paul and Silas had ended up in prison. They'd run into opposition. They'd been opposed and they ended up in prison. They were beaten. They were sore. They were bleeding. And they were singing hymns in the middle of the night in prison. And all, everybody was awake. They all heard them singing. It was midnight. And then suddenly, panic, an earthquake strikes the prison. And the one who panicked the most was the, was the jailer. You know why he panicked? Because if his, any of his prisoners escaped, that would be it for him. He was personally responsible for keeping them. And he was about to kill himself. And Paul cried out, do yourself no harm. And the man came. And he cast himself before Paul and Silas and said, What must I do to be saved? You know what Paul said to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he spoke a great many other words to him and to his household. Lydia being baptized and the Philippian jailer, he believed and he was baptized together with the believing members of his household. This was the beginning of God's work, not only in Philippi, but it was the beginning of God's work in Lydia and her household. And Philip, um, the Philippian jailer, who we don't know his name, the Philippian jailer and his household. But God began a work in them. The gospel came to them in power by the Holy Spirit. They heard about Jesus Christ. And they believed and were baptized. God had begun a good work in them. And there were many others now in Philippi. This is some years on and Paul is writing to all the saints. And the church is well established. It's got overseers and it's got deacons. 
It's reached a certain state of development where it's relatively mature and it has proper leadership and servants. But it began in Lydia. It began in the heart of the Philippian jailer and those who first heard the gospel when Paul and Silas came to them. And that is how the gospel comes. When God begins a good work in you, in your heart, in your mind, it is when the gospel comes to you in power. Now, when you became a Christian, you may not remember a great deal of the details. And it may have been a relatively quiet conversion to Christ. Need not have to be as dramatic as the Philippian jailer. It doesn't seem to me that Lydia's conversion was dramatic. It simply says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. What then is this good work that God has begun? It's the work of salvation. Is there anything else that God does which you could say is as good as the turning of a sinner from their sin? To trust in Christ to repent of sin and to be given a new life the gift of eternal life God when he begins a good work in us is when he makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus he makes us anew we are born of God we are born of the spirit that is what it means when the Lord opened Lydia's heart she believed, she repented, she was baptized. So it is with everyone who is truly converted to Christ. You're made alive in Christ. You're raised with Christ to newness of life. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were a sinner by nature, a sinner by practice. You were on your way to hell, not heaven. You were nowhere near heaven. You were walking the opposite direction. You were turning away from God and now you've been turned right the way around. You've been converted. That's the work of God. That's the beginning of the work of God in you. God changes a person's heart completely. Dealing with their sin. Dealing with their guilt. Dealing with their uncleanness. Their pollution. Setting you free from the penalty of sin. God's judgment and condemnation and hell. Setting you free from its bondage, its power, its corrupting power. Renewing your nature and making you now a new creature in Christ. Being conformed to the image of Christ. Being renewed in the image of God in knowledge, in righteousness and in holiness. Whereas once you were disobedient. Whereas once you were alienated from God, whereas once you were an enemy of God, now you live a life of obedience and holiness, a life that you live through the death and resurrection of your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Redeemer, redeeming you from a life of sin and death setting you free from the clutches of Satan and setting you free to know God and to love him, to obey him. That's God's good work. 
that has begun in you. It's nothing less than the work of salvation. Lydia and the Philippian jailer were the first of many in Philippi. But this work of God, this good work of God, had a beginning. It's ongoing. But what also we are told specifically in this verse is that God will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is confident that God, if he has begun a good work, he must continue that good work until it is completed in the day of Jesus Christ. He is as confident that the God who has begun a good work will also complete that work. Now, you see, it's easier for us to think, well, if God has begun a good work, and I can see that he's begun a good work in me, I could be pretty confident of that. But this is something in the future I'm not sure about. Paul says, you're thinking wrongly at that point. If God has begun a good work in you, if it's God's good work, he must bring it to completion. That is as certain as the fact that he's begun a good work. That's the way to deal with some of our doubts and our fears. You have to reason, you have to preach to yourself and say, look, what has actually happened to me? Well, if God has begun the good work, then he must bring it to completion. Why am I then so unsure, so uncertain? God is not carrying out some kind of experiment, working on some sort of theory. We'll, we'll test this theory that if, 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 if this work of salvation begins, then perhaps we can see if it will actually come to completion. God is working to a plan, and he's working powerfully to a plan. It's a plan of salvation, and the plan of salvation had in mind not only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it had in mind your resurrection. It had in mind your future in the day of Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians 2 and verse 13, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do and notice the word good again for his good pleasure this is God's good pleasure if you understand the character and the nature of God and the way that he works why would you ever entertain the thought that a work that God has begun he'll somehow leave incomplete, incomplete and unfinished where's God's faithfulness why would you question God's faithfulness? Why would you question God's ability and power and love? Why would he leave you stranded, as it were? God has set you apart for himself. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. He has been raised from the dead, as we read this morning. He's been, he has ascended into heaven, and he will return again in glory. God will complete this work, this good work in you, in the day of Jesus Christ. That's the completion day. Now you say, well, what, what about death? Well, won't that rob me of heaven? Well, Paul doesn't have a problem with that. Because he says later on in the chapter, 
Being confident of this, verse 25, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith. He says, it doesn't matter whether I live or die. And he said quite clearly in verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and what? To be with Christ. Should he die, he will go to be with Christ. Should you die before the day of Jesus Christ, you will go to be with Christ. Yes, there is a separation of body and spirit. Your body will remain in the grave. But your spirit will go to be with Christ. Paul says that's far better. Far better. But for, for now I have to stay in the flesh. It's more needful for you. But Paul says, death death is not going to separate me. Death is not going to mean this work then is unfinished. There are lots of people in this world today who say, when you die, that's it. There's nothing else. You're done for. That isn't Paul's perspective at all. Paul is saying, yes, death may separate body and spirit, but it does not separate me from Christ. My spirit is joined to Christ. My body is still joined to Christ in the grave. And in any case, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. The harvest will and must follow. Those who belong to Christ will be raised to be with Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. The apostle says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's already in heaven. There's a sense in which you already have one foot in heaven. Because you are joined to Jesus Christ and you can't be separated from him in his death and in his resurrection. So your citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform, listen to this, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, I haven't time to expand that latter phrase, but it's talking about the power of Christ, the ability of Christ, the working of Christ. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the one who took flesh and blood. Christ is the one who assumed our nature. Christ is the one who died for us and has been raised from the dead and he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And when Jesus Christ comes in glory, the day of Christ, then he will bring to completion that work of salvation, that work of redemption. Sin and death will be no more. Satan will have been removed from the scene and cast into the fire that burns forever. And the work of salvation, the work that God has begun in you here and now, will be brought to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul is utterly convinced of that. He is fully persuaded. I am confident of this one thing. This one thing is God's good work. I am confident of God. 
I'm confident in God. I'm confident in God the Father. I'm confident in God the Son. I'm confident in God the Holy Spirit. Because they are doing the same work, the same good work. They've begun a good work, they will bring it to completion. It is inevitable. It must be the case. Or God is no longer God. And Jesus Christ was never raised from the dead. Now what I'm asking you then this morning is this. Do you have, have you grasped the grounds of your confidence? Your confidence in God, not in yourself, but in God. Well you say, well, I take a look at myself, I seem a long, long way from heaven. And there are times when I seem to be off track. And the things that happen to me in my life that make me doubt. I'm very short on holiness. I have many failings, many sins, many struggles. But who has got you in his hands? Who has begun a good work in you? He's not going to abandon you. He will finish the work that he has begun. It's begun in Christ by the power of the Spirit. It will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. Do not question God's goodness, therefore, and God's power. God's love and mercy and grace. That work of salvation begun in you must be brought to completion. And Paul says, I am confident of this one thing, this very thing. Because I'm confident in God. Now before I wind this up and come to the third and final point, I just want to say at this point, there may be some of you who are questioning God's goodness. You take a look around you in this world and you say, I, I, I can't see the goodness of God. Well, my friend, it may be that you're looking entirely the wrong place. You're looking at all the evil things that go on in this, wo- on in this world and you may be blaming God. But are you looking at the love of God in Jesus Christ? That's where you will see the supreme goodness of God. And then there may be some of you who are saying, well, you've been emphasizing, I need to be made alive in Christ. I need to be raised with him to newness of life. I need to be born again of the Spirit of God. If, if, if it's the Lord who opens the heart of Lydia, then I'm not sure if God is opening my heart or has opened my heart or will open my heart. How can I be born again? How can I do anything to make my heart open? Perhaps some of you younger people and boys and girls have been thinking about that. Perhaps you've discussed it with our, our brother Reuben and asked him questions about it on a Sunday night. And if you've got questions, I'm happy to join him tonight and talk to you. And you can ask me. You can ask him. You can ask Pastor Jeremy. Ask your parents. You see, the Bible does say you must be born again. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus, didn't he? But that's not a command. Did you know that? It's not a command. You must, it's a statement of fact. You can't enter into the kingdom of heaven until you've been born again. And Jesus goes on to say, well, 
But you, you don't know where the wind's blowing from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. You're not in control of those things. So then how can you be born again? Well, Jesus goes on in that passage in John chapter 3 to talk about Moses and the bronze serpent. Do you remember they were, they were bitten because of their sin? Those Israelites in the days of Moses in the wilderness. And God commanded Moses to build a serpent out of bronze. And then he held it up in the middle of the camp and told people to look. Because God had said, if you look at that bronze serpent, you will be healed. You will not die. And he goes on to say, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's no use you sitting there saying, well, am I, aren't I born of God? You could be asking that question 10, 15, 20 years' time and made no progress. Because that is not the way to become a Christian. The way to become a Christian is to look to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The Bible doesn't direct us to look to the Father or to look to the Holy Spirit. He directs us to look to a crucified and risen Jesus Christ who has atoned for our sin by shedding his blood on the cross. He is that all-sufficient saviour. You need no one else. You see, you are commanded to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told the Philippian jailer. Believe and you will be saved. He didn't say to him that Go away and try and work out if you've been born again. That would have meant nothing to the man. But he was to believe. He was to look to Jesus Christ. He was to believe upon Jesus Christ and then he would be saved. And he did. And he was. And that was the day God began a good work in him. The day he looked unto Christ. The day he was saved. You can't make yourself new. You must go to Christ. You can't deal with your sin. You must go to Christ. You can't wash away your guilt. You can't change the course and pattern of your life. It won't last. You can turn over a new leaf. You can try your best for a little while, but it won't last. You need to be made anew. You need to be made alive because you're dead in trespasses and sins. And who can give you eternal life? And who can make you alive? It is Jesus Christ alone. He is the appointed one. Therefore, look to him. Come to him and cast yourself upon him as a lost and guilty sinner. And he will receive you. That's what he says he will do. Whoever comes, whoever believes on me, I'll never cast them away. I'll receive them. I'll give them eternal life. You're invited to come. You're commanded to come. Why hesitate? Why delay? Come to him now and be saved. Today could be the very day God begins a good work in your heart and in your life. And when God begins that, he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Now I must press on thirdly and briefly towards the end now. How will God bring this work, this good work, actually to completion?
Go back to verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The implication is there's an ongoing work here. He's begun it. This complete what happens in between. Well, there are two common mistakes that are made. The first is this. Well, if it's a work of God, then I don't need to do anything. I'm passive. I just sit back. No, that would be quite wrong. I haven't time to deal with that in detail. But the Apostle Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 12, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. When God begins a work in you, he sets you to work. That's, that's the simplest way I can put it. He sets you to work. So that you begin to obey, you begin to live a life that is pleasing to God. But then the other error is this. It's not so much an error, it's a failure to recognize something. This verse here is often taken only to refer to individual believers. And it's not wrong. I mean, I made that, I think, quite clear. You know, God began a good work in Lydia. God began a good work in the Philippian jailer. But the whole context in which he is writing is the church. God's good work of salvation is never simply an individual here, an individual there, an individual there. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to enlarge our vision here. Here is something that's going to include men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation down through the centuries. This is God's work. The church is God's work. It is the church for which Christ died and rose from the dead. It is the church, the saints of God, who are in Christ Jesus. And that is the context here. And I think we would be quite wrong in limiting it in our understanding simply to me and God. Me as an individual. It's true. That if God has begun a good work in you as an individual, he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. But you're never alone. You're part of a great body of those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi, the elders, the overseers, the deacons. And if you look through the opening words of this letter, you will see again, you, plural, you all, it's a repeated stress. God's work here is not simply a work in one individual here and one individual there. It's the creation of a whole new humanity. A new race whose citizenship is in heaven. A new creation in Christ. The church in Philippi is but a microcosm. And so is Maidenbow Baptist Church and every true gospel church. Here then is a vast number of people. Here is a good and a great work of God. This is the greatest work that now God is doing in this world. It's the calling out of people to Christ. And the forming of a new humanity. A work that God has begun and a work that God will complete. God has his church on earth 
And God will have his people in heaven, his church. And while they're in this world, the world will not overcome them. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. Christ has assured us of that. And if that is the case, then we must understand then how it is that God brings that work to completion. It is never you isolated, cut off from the church of Christ. It is you as part of the body of Christ. Part of a local body of Christ. A properly constituted, recognised church as the church in Philippi was with its qualified overseers and its deacons. See, how can you be shaped and moulded into the image of Christ? What means has God appointed? Well, we haven't time to go through Philippians or the rest of the New Testament scriptures. But let me just highlight one or two things. If you're going to be shaped and moulded into the image of Christ and made ready for heaven and entertain this certainty and maintain that certainty and not fall into doubts and fears then it will be as you sit under the word of God and you hear the promises of God, you hear the warnings, you hear the admonitions, you hear the rebukes, you hear receive the instruction. Because in that way, what is going on? Your faith, your love, your hope, your joy, your zeal is being promoted. Now, a lot of you sit and take notes. I'm not against you taking notes. I like to see people's eyes and talk to them. But some of you want to take notes. But even if you don't take notes, as you hear these things, is it not true that you've been stimulated by hearing the word of God and the word of Christ again this morning? Has your faith been quickened? Has your hope been intensified? Because that is the way that God maintains this work in you. It is God's work. It's as you hear God's word, God's promises, God's commands by God's servants, those who are appointed to preach and teach in the church. How are we kept? Peter answers that question later on in one of his letters. He says, You've got an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. And what does he say? Who are kept. By faith. Faith. Faith is what you need to be certain. And where do you find that faith nourished, fed, nurtured? As you hear the preaching of the word of God. As you come to the Lord's table. And a crucified saviour again is set before you. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. We must remember him. Because he is the very means of our salvation. He is our saviour. We must remember him in that kind of way that he has commanded for our faith and our love to develop and increase. Christ is the object of our faith and our love and our hope. And it's as he has said before us that it is exercised, cultivated, maintained. That's part of the reason why we speak of the formative discipline of the church. The exhortations, the warnings, the counsels. 
the love of the brethren, praying for the brethren, talking to brethren, encouraging brethren, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens. All those things nourish faith and love and hope because you're doing the will of God. And that's the way God, that's the God way God sustains his work and will bring it to completion. I wish I could go to verses 9, 10, and 11, but Paul is praying for those very things to take place in the life of this congregation in the Philippians. That's the sudden substance of his prayer. And all the difficulties and struggles and trials that we face do not alter any of that. Paul says in verse 27, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Trials and difficulties will come. Paul's in prison. They're facing persecution. What does it do? Even those things stimulate their faith and their love and their trust and their determination to stand fast as one man for the gospel. There's a great deal more I could say. Now I don't preach on any regular basis. I have to try and pack it all in in one sermon. (laughs) But this verse has been impressed upon my heart and mind for several weeks. I've lived with it. And it's, it's, it's done my soul good. And I trust that it has stimulated you to a greater confidence, a greater optimism, not based on anything you can do, will do, try to do. But you must work. But ultimately, it's in God, the triune God. Wonder of wonders, he's done a good work. And he's doing a good work. He's begun it. He will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. Blessed be his name. Amen. Amen. We bless you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for that great good work of salvation that you have begun in so many of us and will bring to completion in the day of Christ. Lord, continue that work in us and strengthen our faith and our hope and our love. Come by your Holy Spirit and persuade us and convince us that we may share that same confidence of the Apostle Paul with regard to his own salvation, regard to the salvation of the entire Church of Christ, including those in Philippi. Lord, we pray, strengthen us then by these things and bring glory through your Church and through the salvation that you have wrought in us by Jesus Christ, to whom be honour and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.